Well, my name is Pastor David Culbertson. I'm the youth pastor here at State College Assembly. I'm honored to be able to preach and speak with you this morning. We'll be continuing in our expectancy series this, this morning as we take an in-depth look at the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 27 is where we will be. We'll be taking a look at two separate portions of Scripture this morning, but they are talking about the same subject, the same topic. Mark 14, the 27th verse says this, On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and I will meet you there. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. You don't have to have been in church for very long to have read about or heard a message on the denial of Peter. Right? It's something that we discuss often. It's something that's often preached on on Sunday mornings. We'll be focusing on it this morning, in fact. But I find that often they take it a different way, most pastors do, than I would like to this morning. So if it's all right with you, we're going to go a different path. All right. Somebody was listening to my disclaimer. Let's take a look at what just happened here in this very moment. In the passage just prior that Pastor Paul spoke on last week, Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples. And during this moment, he announces that one of them would betray him. In the parallel to this passage, John 13, we discover that in this moment, after Jesus announced that one would betray them, Peter leans over and kind of nudges John. They're good friends, and Peter knows that John is the beloved of Jesus. He knows if he's going to tell anybody, he'll tell John. And so John asks Jesus, who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus tells him, it's Judas. And so I think it's fair to say that in this moment that we're discussing this morning, At the very least, Peter and John knew that Judas was the one that was going to betray them. As they left that final meal with Jesus to head to the Mount of Olives to pray, specifically the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas split and left the group to do what he was going to do, to gather the Jewish leaders to come and arrest Jesus. So all this has happened in a matter of hours, and Peter is caught in quite the whirlwind of emotion, of thought, trying to understand what's going on. Jesus keeps talking about how he's going to die, but it's okay because it was foretold and it needs to happen, but that's not how Peter thought it was supposed to happen. And then Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him, and Peter finds out it's Judas, and Judas abandons them. And then, if that wasn't enough, as they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus stops everybody, the 11 disciples that are left, and says, every single one of you, will abandon me. Every single one of you will leave me, but we'll meet up later. And Peter just doesn't get it. Peter just doesn't understand. And in that moment goes, no, Jesus, even if everybody else denies you, if even if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave your side. I would die for you. But in verse 30, we have Jesus' response. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, You will deny three times that you even know me. 
Peter apparently had not learned what I have yet. Don't argue with Jesus. He will always win because he's always right. (laughs) Amen. But I can't blame him because I know that at this moment, Peter didn't have the same Holy Spirit in him that I have that allows me to understand these things and have a great revelation of who God is. But all this happens. Jesus tells Peter he will deny him. Peter very emphatically says otherwise. Then the Bible goes on to tell us that they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and they pray. And it's there that Judas shows back up on the scene accompanied by a mob of armed individuals. A group composed of Roman soldiers, of temple guards, of other individuals coming to arrest Jesus. And as they arrest Jesus, they leave the other disciples and they all flee, just as Jesus said they would. But Peter and John follow this mob at a distance behind to the house, or as some translations say, the palace of the high priest. And it's there where we pick back up in verse 66 of Matthew 14, which says this. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway, and just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I am lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. And suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. I think it's fair to say that this was the lowest moment in Peter's life. If we could interview Peter this morning and ask him the question, what was the greatest failure of your life? which is always a fun question to be asked. I'm positive that this is what he would say. He would say, when I denied Christ. He denied that he even knew the man that had saved him, that had taken him from being a fisherman to be a fisher of men, that had changed his life. He denied that he even knew. No, even more than that, he swore, he promised that he didn't know Jesus. His wonderful teacher the Messiah, the living, breathing Son of God. Peter went from being the apostle that was the first to declare Jesus to be the Messiah, the one that walked on water with him, the one that went out and cast out demons in Jesus' name, to being someone that claimed that they didn't even know him. And what makes this moment even more crushing, even more heart-wrenching to read, is a detail that Mark left out that is found in the parallel in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Where it says, in the moment, directly after the second rooster crow and the third denial of Peter, Jesus was in an upper room of the high priest's palace and he turned and he looked directly at Peter. And Peter looked directly at him. In his greatest moment of failure, when he denied that he even knew the man that he loved, his savior, his king, he looked down on him 
and made eye contact with him. It's no wonder that, as the word says, he broke down and wept and fled that place because he was hit full force with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He couldn't take what he had just done. He was disgusted. He had great remorse as the wrong he had just done, the wrong he had just committed. There's a number of different things that I think we could talk about this morning regarding this, this moment, this denial of Peter. But as I spent time praying and studying God's word, I felt the Holy Spirit clearly communicate two different truths, very powerful truths with me. And the first of those is this. We must move from a place of conviction and into a place of repentance. We must move from a place of conviction and into a place of repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. The kind of, repent, or kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. In other words, what the Apostle Paul was talking about in this moment was conviction. Conviction draws us closer to God. It pulls us closer to Him. It's what initially brings us to Him in salvation. And it's what keeps drawing us back to Him when we wander into sin. Beyond that, we know that conviction is given to us through and by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven after he has resurrected. And one of the reasons that he gives that it's better that he should leave so the Holy Spirit can come is so the Holy Spirit can bring conviction to the hearts of men to draw them closer to God. But the Apostle Paul, in the second half of this, wrote about what he called worldly sorrow. But worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. I think it's fair to use this word to describe what he's saying. Guilt. Guilt. Conviction draws us toward God as we repent of what we have done, as we run after him, while guilt pushes us away from God. And we end up not repenting of what we've done. And that makes us feel guilty. And so we draw further away from God. And then we don't repent still, and so it draws us even further away from God. And we enter into this cycle of guilt that sometimes is so difficult to escape. And that is how this worldly sorrow, this guilt, results in spiritual death. We don't repent of what we've done because we feel like we can't even come to God anymore. We listen to the lie that the devil presents that says, he doesn't want to hear from you now. You've been gone for so long. You've been living in this sin for so long. You haven't repented of it like you're supposed to. We feel dirty. We feel unworthy, unable to come before him. And that is exactly what Satan wants. He's gotten entirely too good at this trick. And I'm tired of seeing Christians fall into it. He has taken something that was given by God through the Holy Spirit, conviction, and he has changed it into something terrible that suits his purposes to draw us away from him. Church, when you are hit in that moment of failure with conviction, don't sit and wallow in it. Because that's what leads to guilt. 
We sit and we, th- we somehow think that if we sit and we, we contemplate and we, we wallow in this conviction this, that we're feeling, we cry more about what we've done, somehow it's going to please God more. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say that if we sit and contemplate more the conviction that we're feeling and we let it affect our spirit more, then God's going to appreciate it more and we'll get better forgiveness. No. One kind. One way. Don't let the devil convince you that you should sit in the conviction that you're feeling, that it's impossible for you to come before God because of what you've done. No, that's not what God's word says. We must move from a place of conviction into a place of repentance and quickly. Don't wait on it, church. When you feel that, respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Repent and come back to God because he wants you to come back to him. The second and final truth for this morning is this. God will take your greatest failure and he will turn it into your greatest testimony. God will take your greatest failure and turn it into your greatest testimony. Hallelujah. There is nothing that God can't redeem. Amen? Amen. Nothing. There is nothing that goes beyond the power of Jesus. God can and will take that greatest failure, that moment that you regret, and use it for his glory. We see this presented to us all throughout the Bible. We look at the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 2. He's living in the Pharaoh's house, and he goes out along his people, the Hebrews. He sees an Egyptian slave driver beating one of his brothers. So what does he do? He looks around to make sure nobody's watching and kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand and goes about his business. The next day he comes out. In verse 14, it tells us that he finds two Hebrew brothers fighting each other, so he separates them. And they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses realized that everybody knew what he had done. Pharaoh tried to kill him, but he fled out of Egypt into Midian. But is that failure the end of his story? No. Was that the end of how God used him? No. God called Moses back to Egypt through a burning bush, which would be awesome, by the way. That's the youth pastor in me coming out a little bit calls him back to Egypt to deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians. Moses, a murderer, was called by God to come back and to deliver his people. Not only that, God used him to do amazing, miraculous signs and wonders. To throw a staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. To pour water from the Nile River onto the ground and it becomes blood. Amazing things that God used a murderer to do. King David, one of my favorite Bible characters, admittedly. Bet you can't guess why. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, God had given David the kingdom. God had brought him from a lowly position of a shepherd boy all the way up to king of all of Israel. Had given him power, wealth, fame, everything he could want. But he let that get the best of him. When he was on top 
of his palace overlooking his kingdom, he saw a woman bathing on the rooftop, Bathsheba. He sent for her to come to him. He committed adultery with her, and she got pregnant. But that's not where the failure ends. David then sends commands, orders to his commanders on the battlefield that the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite, which was one of David's mighty men, by the way, one of David's most trusted soldiers who stuck with him through thick and thin, and ordered that he should be put into the heat of battle. And just when things got the worst, everybody retreat except for Uriah so that he would surely die. King David committed adultery and arranged murder of one of his good friends. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, thankfully it didn't take long, the Holy Spirit moves through the prophet Nathan and convicts David of what he had done. And he repents. And he moves on. And God uses him in mighty ways. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, he is still referred to as and known as a man after God's own heart with a love that far supersedes anybody else. A man after God's own heart. Beyond that, Jesus Christ descended from the house of David. A man who had incredible failure in his life. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, we read about how he persecuted the early church. How he found and murdered early Christians. He hated the gospel, the message of Christ. But he encountered God on that road to Damascus. And his life was changed forever. He went from being Saul to the Apostle Paul. God used him to do many, many miraculous things. There's more miracles done by Paul recorded in this book than all of the other apostles individually. He wrote over half of the New Testament. God took a man that persecuted him, that hated his church, that killed his followers, and made him one of the greatest apostles of the church. And lastly, the Apostle Peter. In Mark chapter 14, what we've been looking at and discussing this morning, he denied Christ. Denied that he even knew him. A terrible, terrible sin. A terrible failure. For Jesus said, if you deny me in front of man, I will deny you in front of my Father. But yet, as we look into John chapter 21, he repents and is restored to his apostleship by Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, he becomes the leader of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto that upper room and it became such a loud noise that people gathered from all over to see what was going on, who was the one that rose up and addressed that crowd? Who was the one that preached the gospel with such anointing and power that 3,000 people came to join the church that day? Peter the man who had denied Christ. In Acts 5, 15, it tells us that God had anointed Peter so strongly that people would lay their sick and diseased along the path that he would take in hopes that his shadow would pass over them so they would be healed. The man who had denied Christ. God can and will Take your greatest failure 
and turn it into your greatest testimony. It doesn't matter that everybody knew what had happened to those four men. The Bible tells us that each and every one of them, everyone knew what they had done. For Paul, everybody knew that he was a persecutor of the church. For Moses, it says everyone in Egypt knew that he had murdered them. For King David, his scandal was known throughout the palace and the kingdom. He had ordered a hit on somebody. For Peter, he was called out by Christ in front of all of the other disciples. And he denied Christ in the company of his best friend John. But praise God, because the knowledge of man can't stop the power of God. Romans 8.28 says, God uses all things for the good of those that love him. God took those moments of failure that everyone knew and used them to draw people to him. People saw that God was still using them despite their failures, and they realized if God can use a murderer, if God can use an adulterer, if God can use someone who once persecuted him, if God can use someone who walked away from him, then he can use me. I am living proof of this, church. I, didn't, I grew up in the church. I grew up as a third, fourth generation pastor, depending on the side that you look at. But I had a far from perfect life. I walked through anorexia. I walked through depression. I walked away from God. Because my grandfather had been miraculous to be healed of cancer by God. Only to be taken from this world a year later. And I hated God for it. I was so mad. So upset. And I walked away from him. That's my greatest failure. But I tell you this. God has used it as a great testimony. God has transformed my life. From being some young boy that struggled with self-image. That struggled with the battle of his mind of depression that hated God into a preacher, a man that declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, if he can take my greatest failure, if he can take Peter's greatest failure, if he can take Moses' greatest failure, Paul, he can take yours. Hallelujah. You don't have to be stuck in it anymore. Hallelujah. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus didn't come to die for your sins so that you would be stuck in them. So that you would look at your failure and think, I can't possibly overcome that. God can't use me. No! Jesus came. He won it forever so that you could come to him. Stand with me this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. 
There are some of you that came in here this morning bound. Whether it's by guilt of things that you've done in your past or whether it's by a sin or a failure that you are stuck in the middle of and you can't seem to overcome. But I declare God's word and I say this, you are free and released in Jesus' name. In Romans 8, 37, it says, we have overwhelming victory through Christ Jesus. Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth, and that spirit of Jesus, his Holy Spirit, lives within us. Stop declaring over yourself that you struggle with pornography. Stop declaring over yourself that you struggle with depression. Whatever it may be, Start declaring the freedom that Jesus has promised you. More than that, the freedom that Jesus has given you. You are free. That's why Jesus came. God looked down and could see that we were entrapped by sin. He knew it before time began. He decided to send his son Jesus not to forgive us of our sins so that we could have a right relationship with God. That's part of it. But he sent him to free us from that slavery. The Bible says we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. You don't have to be bound. You don't have to be stuck. Isaiah chapter 44 Verse 22 says, I have swept swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. If you were here this morning, quit focusing on the thing you're trying to overcome. Quit trying to stop doing it. And start focusing on the one that can release you from it. If you're here this morning and you have yet to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to have Him come in and change your life forever, let me tell you what the Bible has to say. In Romans 3.23, it says a very simple truth. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. In Romans 6.23 it says, The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God doesn't desire for you to live a life stuck in sin. Its pleasures are but momentary. They will fail. It results in death. But God's gift lasts forever. God's gift is freedom. God's gift is love. God's gift is forgiveness. How do you become part of that family, of the kingdom of light? Come into relationship with Jesus. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you openly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that easy. It's that easy. If everybody could bow your heads, close your eyes. If you are here this morning, 
and you have felt something tugging on your heart, you have yet to enter into relationship with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Ask Him to come and change you from head to toe, to renew you, to forgive you of your sins. I want to invite you to make that decision in this moment. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand and look at me. I'm not going to call you out. I want to see you. I want to pray with you and rejoice with you as you enter into the kingdom of God. For the rest of us, are you stuck? Are you stuck in guilt? In overcoming that failure, that misstep? Jesus doesn't want you to stay there. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to raise your hand and look at me. I want to pray for you. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is there anybody else? Hallelujah. I see your hand. I see your hands. You can put them down. Is there anybody else? I see you. Hallelujah. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I'm done praying, Pastor Kyle is going to lead us in a song. These altars are open. It's time to stop running. It's time to stop being stuck by running to God instead of running from that sin that has entrapped you. And I will say this, one last thing before I pray. Your failure will never define you. It will never define you. God defines you. You are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High King. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Say new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. It's behind you. It's done. It is finished. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you take our failures and you turn them into great and mighty testimonies. God, that you use broken people like me to make a difference in this world. Lord, I declare freedom in the name of Jesus Christ over all of those people that raised their hand, including those that didn't Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, you came to set the captives free. Speak of your freedom to them now. Give them a greater revelation of who you are right now. A greater revelation of your love for them right now. That nothing can separate them from your love. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to pierce our hearts and draw us closer and closer to you. That you would renew these individuals. That you would put people in their lives that show them who you are. And that your spirit would be poured out on them in a mighty measure. I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.